This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Welcome to the BBNR Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Patricia Riley Cook. And I'm your host, Dora Bush Cook. Thank you for listening. We are so excited that we get to do this podcast and help people learn how to take better care of themselves by interviewing thought leaders and experts in health and wellness about their personal health journeys. This week, we talked to Rich Fernandez, the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute and the co-founder of the Wisdom Labs. We can't wait for you to hear his description of what it means to live a life of mindfulness, to live in this present moment, and to watch and witness what unfolds. The Search Inside Yourself program, also known as SILLY, partners with us at the Achieving Optimal Health Conference. It's a great program that started in Google and deals with the stress in the workplace. Rich's perspective on teaching Search Inside Yourself is really mind-blowing. The idea that you can actually unhinge stress, the idea that maybe stress isn't really there, that it might be a story you tell yourself, is something that we thought was really interesting. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Rich Fernandez, and we look forward to checking back with you at the end. My name is Rich Fernandez, and I'm the CEO of the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute. We're a nonprofit organization, and we offer mindfulness and emotional intelligence training and tools to people and organizations around the world. Drip coffee every morning. I just pour the filter and then pour water. That's my thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, Rich, we're so happy you're with us. It's so nice to meet you, Trisha. And I've been following your career um, and have been wanting to meet you. So here we are. Thank you. So happy to be here. We just want you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got to search inside yourself, which is where you are now. Absolutely. So I have, uh, I'm someone who's been interested in thriving pretty much my whole life. And um, ever since I was a young adult, I just started taking up things like martial arts and um, exploring things like meditation and spending time in nature, you know, camping and things like this. I always just felt a real strong sense of connection and the desire for wellness. And that carried forward in my career where I trained to become a psychologist. And so I went and got my PhD in psychology. And I was really interested there in what are the factors that help humans thrive? What are the things we can do with our mental and emotional states to help us be our best, to thrive, to meet our fullest potential? And so uh, in my studies in graduate school, I really started becoming interested in the question of work and where does work fit in the larger journey of wellness and thriving uh, because we spend so much time at work. Uh, We spend most, I think, of our uh, waking hours working and some of our most productive time and energy 
uh, working. And so naturally, since it's a place that occupies such an important um, place in our life, that's where I wanted to think about factors that lead to thriving. So I specialized in organizational psychology, and I spent 10 years, the first 10 years after my PhD in the financial services, um, you know, working in large organizations, uh, really on um, what's called learning and development. And so this is uh, ways that we help employees within the organization uh, achieve their potential, sustain their performance, develop their leadership skills, um, and then every other type of learning that's useful for them uh, in their roles in the organization, but also as people. And that last piece, as people, became a more and more important question for me. Uh, and I really was interested in understanding how we can support people uh, and their families um, as they show up at work. Uh, and then when they leave work and transition back to their home life, uh, really, really important. And, you know, this is a lot of the question about work-life balance, or I think it's better stated as work-life integration, because there's this kind of, you know, seamlessness, this kind of continuity that carries over from the office to work and then from home to the office. Um, but anyway, so as I got more and more interested in that question, I then transitioned over to the technology sector and I went over to eBay um, and um, headed up their learning function. Uh, and um, at that time, I got really interested in bringing some personal mindfulness practices that I had found valuable uh, into the workplace. And as the head of learning, I kind of had a responsibility to offer people tools that would be helpful for them. Uh, and so what happened was I started launching mindfulness workshops, teaching some, bringing some speakers in. And, you know, this was about 10 years ago, so it wasn't quite trending the way it is right. today. <laughs> and um, they were wildly popular. Um, so popular that I, I actually had to like ease off or at least, you know, um, have some real interesting conversations with some executive leaders who were asking me, why are hundreds of people leaving, you know, right. <laughs> around lunchtime to go to this huge workshop on, on mindfulness? Is this like, are they trying to stay awake during meetings? Is this what you're teaching them? And I said, well, you know, it's about waking up in a different kind of way, <laughs> you know? So, um, and then that naturally led to, I got recruited and went over to Google where I, um, was heading up executive education. Uh, so this is training for senior leaders and that's, a place also uh, that was very receptive to this type of stuff. In fact, they had kind of a fun, quirky engineer named Meng, uh, <laughs> who uh, had, um, Meng. yes, we know <laughs> Meng, who wrote a book on mindfulness and emotional intelligence. And uh, I was his office mate. And uh, we shared an office and, you know, started teaching this at Google. Um, and then eventually, uh, an institute was created and spun out of Google. And that's the institute that I lead today, uh, which is the search, as in Google search, but inside yourself. <laughs> so it's a search inside yourself leadership institute. And what is that? What does the leadership institute do? So we focus on mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. Now, that's a big uh, string of words to say, but um, the best way to explain it is that the core thing that we were interested in understanding was what are the ways that we can train our brain, engage in mental training, develop mental habits that help us be much more connected, present, um, happy with um, our life and the people in it. Um, and what we realized is that those specific sets of mental training really amounted to mindfulness and emotional intelligence. In other words, when you can train on mindfulness, the ability to be present, to be focused, to be aware, uh, 
uh, and then link it to emotional intelligence, which is the ability to um, you know manage yourself and and have empathy and manage social relationships and even start to express things like compassion and kindness. Um, these are really important qualities for leaders. And they're also really important life skills in general, and they do carry over like to the house and to the family. So, so the curriculum was born. It became a mindfulness and emotional intelligence curriculum. Um, and importantly, it's rooted in science. Uh, so we really looked at brain research to understand what parts of your brain get, what parts of your brain do you need to activate to bring online more empathy? And how do you train that? What type, what parts of your brain do you need to activate to bring more focus and mental clarity when you're working? And how do you train that? And it turns out that there were quite a number of mindfulness techniques that allowed for that. And that's what we brought forward. Today, we offer, um, you know, these programs and tools and trainings to organizations on five continents. We have teachers from 30 different countries. Um, we also offer public programs so uh, people, you know, and the general public can come and attend them as well. Who were some of your mentors mm -hmm. and what kind of impact did they have on your life? Mm. Well, my earliest mentor was my grandmother. Um, and Mine too. Oh, yeah? That's great. That's great. Um, very powerful um, strong woman um, who herself grew up in the countryside in the Philippines, um, became a nurse, um, and um, uh, met my grandfather uh, around the time of World War II. He was a colonel in the Filipino army, um, and um, they um, had a wonderful relationship, but it was definitely, I believe it was a matriarchy, I would have to say. I wasn't <laughs> around then, but knowing my grandmother, like I could not imagine that uh, anybody else ruled the, ruled the roost, you know? Um, so, um, but what she taught me was, um, one was a deep devotion to spirit. Right. So she herself was strongly Catholic. Um, you know, perhaps I'm a little less so, but I definitely got from her a strong connection to something bigger or beyond ourselves. Um, sort of kind of a spiritual or a, a kind of a divine orientation um, that, you know, life is a miracle and, and we need to kind of really understand that and be thankful for it and feel blessed for it and, and give thanks, you know, um, and share the blessing also and be charitable and, and, and generous. All these things I learned from my grandmother. So um, that was something that that uh, I would say that was my first teacher and my first mentor. Um, and then as I kind of play it forward, um, I've had a number of thinkers um, and leaders who, for me, really um, meant something very important. So um, uh, Gandhi, uh, when I came to learn about him in college, um, was profoundly um, transformational for me. The notion that you want to, he said, be the change you want to see in the world. And that message was something I'd never thought about, that if whatever you do, however you show up in the world, and especially if you're a leader, you are the message. Mm -hmm. You are the message. Um, who you're being, how you're showing up, um, the way you treat people, um, every act is a message. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was a huge learning for me when I, I read his autobiography and then I read a number of biographies because I was so fascinated by the man. Um, and then some other teachers, there's a um, still alive, very famous um, Vietnamese Zen monk named Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who's a dear teacher of mine. And he is one of the people through his writings um, that taught me about meditation and taught me about reflection. I knew about prayer. Because again, you know, my grandmother and my family um, and church, but I never really knew about meditation and the two are linked. And one thing I've come to learn and what I've heard described as the difference is that prayer is when we speak to God, but meditation is when we listen, you know, and the two are together are just su such a beautiful practice to have in one's life. So Thich Nhat Hanh uh, taught me that. Um, and... Um, you know, and then uh, some other leaders or rather mentors for me were a number of professors I had both in college and in graduate school um, who really helped me um, push the boundary on what I knew myself to be or who I knew myself to be. Um, and they really helped me see that I was um, a composite, <laughs> the self as I knew it me was really a composite of both my family and my individual experiences, but also my culture, um, my society, my affiliations, the groups and institutions that I, you know, kind of really connected with. For example, I studied martial arts. I studied uh, Kung Fu for many years. And that also was a really important um, experience and, and um the teacher there, as well as the community there, was a really uh, important formative experience for me because it, it showed me that you can work with your own energy. Um, you can cultivate your own energy. You can cultivate um, a sense of well-being um, purely for the sake of, of kind of growing it, right? And it, it basically was a way to, um, you know, the Chinese term for it is qi or energy, but there's a way you can cultivate qi. There's a way you can cultivate energy. In other words, cultivate vibrance on purpose and you can train it through certain exercises. And so that's one of the things I learned through martial arts. And that was another formative experience. So all of these, I'd say the common theme is that they got me in touch with something beyond who I thought I was which is tremendously liberating. Yes. yes. <laughs> wow. You know, in um, reading a lot of your blogs, we saw that you talk about um, the human being, not the human doing. Yes. Can you expand on that? Yeah, about absolutely. That? <laughs> yes, yes. I remember that one blog in particular where... <laughs> Yeah. Doors <laughs> work right yeah. here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, you know, it's think about it. When we're kids, you know, people always ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, what do you want to be, right? And you're like, oh, I want to be an artist or I want to be a pilot and fly through the sky and go to different places in the world and experience that, right? And then somehow, when you get out there, people say, what do you do for a living? Right. <laughs> what is it that you do? You know? True. <laughs> and it becomes like the transactions you conduct and what you execute yeah. and the, the kind of fun and the soul goes out of it, right? Mm -hmm. this, right? This notion of like how you're showing up as a person, who you are, falls out of it. Right. It all of a sudden do do? doesn't matter anymore, right? Um, and in that blog, I talk about this Filipino word for work is hanap buhay, which means the search for life. <laughs> like you say, what's your hanap buhay, which is what's your search for life? Um, I think it's a very beautiful way to talk about, you know, the human being. Mm -hmm. Like who are you being as you journey through life? And what's your search for more vibrance, 
right? And um, then that leads me to also think about, uh, not even think, but the, the way I've increasingly been trying to make my way through life is to um, follow what's alive for me and not what sort of makes me feel deadened and, you know, kind of alienated, but and, rather and serve you, that. How do you distinguish that? How yeah. do you do that? How do you clear the path to know what, what makes you feel alive? Yeah. It's a great question, you know. So for what it is for me is a, the, the, the simple notion of alignment, um, which means that your values, the things that you say are important to you and hold dear, um, are consistent with your behaviors and actions in the world. And when the things you hold most dear are in fact the ways that you're living, then you're serving life then you're following life. And I have personal experience with this because, you know, I've had some really, I've had the great fortune of having some, had some incredible jobs in some incredible companies in my career. And I appreciate them all. There were certain points at which I realized, you know what, this isn't exactly what I want to do with my life. Um, and difficult as that decision was for many reasons um, to leave and to look for something else because there's financial considerations, there's, you know, all of the work that you put in to build that particular career in that company or job. Um, it was, despite that, I, I always found myself ultimately listening to that, that inner kind of voice, that inner calling that said, you're not quite aligned. You're almost aligned, right? right? I'm a psychologist. I get, I get to head learning or I get to head executive education in these incredible companies. Sounds all great. It was great. But here's the thing. It was one degree of separation away from true alignment for me. And one degree of separation off is one degree too much. Mm. But in, in a way, you had to do that to get to be aligned, would you absolutely. say? Absolutely. So, so in a way, what's in the way is the way, right? Correct. Yes, absolutely. And that you take those moments of those experiences. Yes. Yes. And you're living those, and then you can align, see if it's an alignment, yes. and then learn, right? It so all serves. Building blocks. Absolutely, it's all building blocks. It's all stepping stones on the path. Um, the important thing is to be aware. Um, as much as possible, right, of where you're at um, and how this aligns with uh, your aspirations, your hopes for your own life, for your own dreams. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's that expression, what will you do with this one wild and precious life? Uh, Mary Oliver. Yeah, yes, Mary, Mary Oliver. Oliver. Beautiful, beautiful expression, right? And so there's this opportunity to always revisit that question every day. And sometimes it'll take years. I remember it took me years you see, I'm someone who basically left a career to follow a calling because mm. I left almost 20 years of uh, a corporate career, which I had built up over 20 years, to then follow something that was much more a true love of mine, which is mindfulness and the teaching of mindfulness. And then I started a business doing that. And now I run a nonprofit institute doing that. And just a report from the field, by the way, for all the <laughs> listeners out there, I feel so aligned and I'm really happy, happier than I've ever been and truly happy and fulfilled at work. So if it's if any, you know, if it's, yeah, if it's, it's any possible. value, it, you know, yeah. it took like almost 20 years yeah. to get here, but I'm there's here and hope. it feels great. There's hope. That's, that's so neat. <laughs> yeah. This podcast today has been brought to you by Ignite Coffee from BBNR Wellness. We developed a proprietary mixture of specialty-grade coffee beans and an amazing blend of anti-inflammatory spices, including turmeric, cardamom, cinnamon, 
Mache and Anche chiles, so you can do more than just wake up in the morning. Order Ignite Coffee at www.bbrconsulting.us. Enjoy your coffee and ignite your life. You know, one question that we were talking about before you got here was, you know, if Rich was king of the world, mm-hmm. how would you see things, how would you want things to be uh, different than they are today? Or how would you want everything to go? Mm. <laughs> now, that is a great question. Like king Rich. <laughs> well, what I would say is that my wish would be that we have a, a true, deep understanding of the interdependence of pretty much all of life, right? And that we don't do things that are so short-sighted that we lose track of the larger impact they're having. Because in reality, you know, we as individuals and then we as societies are not separate from each other. What happens here has implications across the ocean, and what happens across the ocean has implications here. To think that we're separate is an illusion. Uh, It's very much like looking at the ocean, seeing a wave and going, there's a wave, and that's very different from the ocean. No, they're not. They're unique phenomena, but they're all part of the same thing. And that is the way I kind of see um, our social fabric, our society, our planet. Um, And I think it's really important to understand that chain of interdependence and have that lens as a leader in terms of how we, we make decisions and that we're not just going for short-term wins, but really thinking much more systemically. Um, another blog that Trisha and I liked mm. a lot, you talked about looking inward to find joy. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I love the poem mm-hmm. that you that just came to you. The Feast of Joy, yes. Yes, yes the, feast, the of joy. feast of Joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the idea there, Doro, is that... Um, We have an innate capacity for joy uh, that in many ways, um, that's our default state. That in fact, we are, take a look at a kid, right? A kid is not worried. uh, Now, granted, they don't have responsibilities and they're taken care of, but they're not fretting. You know, a kid who has what they need, basically, they're not fretting about the past or like what's going to happen tomorrow. They're just in the moment. They're delighted by life. They're walking around in wonder and fun and awe. Um, I think we have that capacity within us always. Um, A little bit what gets in the way is our own mind, our own uh, sort of ingrained mental habits to analyze and judge and criticize the past or to project forward and try to preempt a future that may or may not happen. Uh, And so uh, the capacity to be in the present moment and enjoying the blessing, like I said earlier, the miracle that is this life, is available to us now. And the simple simple logic around that is because you're alive. Right. That's why it's available to you. <laughs> and that's a miracle. Right. And if you can just connect in with that, whatever that means to you, I'm not out here saying, you know, like it means a defined thing, but the life that you are is potentially a spontaneous source of joy for each and every one of you if you're able to connect with it and be present with it. And that, however, sometimes takes training. Because our mind wants to race forward and our mind wants to run backwards and much less so is it able to be present with, like I said, the the joy that is available in each of our hearts. Yeah, the idea that everything is okay right now. Yes. So to find the joy here. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, Although, you know, sometimes it's not okay. And the people have very difficult, we all suffer, right? right and right. people's circumstances vary and mm-hmm. the experiences they have. I think about some of our incredible veterans who come back and some of the things they've seen, I can only imagine, right? Um, and so they're, they're holding a lot. And that is true. That is, there is no doubt about that, you know? Um, and at the same time, there is also this capacity for spontaneous joy. So the two exist at the same time, and it's uh, more about what we're able to inhabit. And it's no sort of, um, I don't mean to suggest any sort of judgment here. It's just simply like what is more prominent in our life. And for whatever reason, sometimes trauma can take a hold in a very, very powerful way. And it requires support and and care to, to navigate through that because on the other side of it, again, is this spontaneous joy that is the life that we are, that you are, each of us individually. Um, And so all of that existing at the same time, it requires what's sometimes referred to as skillful means to be able to navigate and then, you know, inhabit uh, a different state of mind, a different uh, emotional state, um, and a different way of being. And, you know, being is a verb, right? So um, it means that, you know, you, you're, that we are having an experience, a very powerful experience sometimes, an overwhelming experience, um, but it's an experience that can come and go as well. And joy is an experience that's also a way of being, and it's an experience that can come and go. And so what are the mental habits, the, the ways of the practices that will allow us to kind of, you know, pivot more into joy and less into suffering. That's what I've been really fascinated with. So the Search Inside Yourself program. Yes. That helps with yes. a lot of that. Yes. What do people um, who, who um, partake in the program find most surprising? Uh-huh. They, they, first of all, they find um, surprising that they're far less stressed <laughs> after they take the program because all of a sudden they have a way to um, experience stress, to kind of see it squarely without suppressing it, pushing it away, but to pivot away. At the, uh, even though if it's there, they're able to just pivot the, the, the spotlight of their attention, the focus of their attention from being consumed by stress to being able to manage stress. A different way to say it is they're able to respond to stress rather than constantly reacting to it. There's a, a lovely analogy we, we like to use about um, a horse and a rider. Um, and uh, there's this village elder who's sitting in a town square notices horse and rider galloping wildly across the town square to the north. Five minutes later, galloping wildly through the town square to the south. Um, and then this elder is just wondering what is happening with this horse and rider. Horse and rider comes back and then gallops wildly to the west. At which point, when the horse and rider surely comes back, the village elder stops the rider and says, rider, 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 where are you going? with such haste and wild abandon. And the writer says, that's a really good question. You're going to have to ask the horse. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's an analogy about how our heart and our mind runs wild. And we often don't have a way to kind of 
you know, guide it right. and help navigate. Um, and in the Search Inside Yourself curriculum, we teach tools to help you work with your mind to see what's happening in your mind in your emotional state and to respond to it rather than mm. being consumed by it. And that is a huge difference. So does stress exist or is it our response to a situation that creates stress? Yeah, uh, stress exists, right? There's existential stress, there's hunger, there's you know the physical mm -hmm. symptoms of stress, and then there's also emotional and mental stress that we also can create for ourselves. Some of it based on reality, right? Some of it not. Um, so stress is a sta state of mental st or emotional strain. Mm. Uh, and it's often caused internally or externally. Um, it almost, um, in either case, it, 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 the most important thing is how do you relate to the stress, not that you can completely eliminate stress. I think in our day and age, given the information overload that we experience, the role of technology, the overwhelming amount of news that's coming in, the news cycles are right. in, intense and exhausting, um, that stress is not going away. Right? These problems are complex, wicked problems even that aren't going to go away. You know, Climate change, the crisis in the Middle East, the crisis on the Korean Peninsula. These are not problems that can v simply be solved. So they're going to be around for a while. Um, the amount of information we get, you know, the, the role of technology in our lives, these things are not really going to go away. We're not going to go in a cave somewhere. Um, so there's some stress that's associated with all of those things. And so it's not about eliminating stress. It's about being in wise relationship to it and having the tools to respond versus react to it. Mm. You know, there's uh, three core principles that are pretty timeless across all sort of traditions, ancient traditions and modern traditions around the exercise of mindfulness. Um, the first is um, have a defined practice, whether it's prayer or walking the dog or sitting for meditation, have a time and place where you can create some contemplative time, some time for reflection. Um, so well, number one is the simple teaching itself. Number two is it's really helpful to have a teacher. So if you could find a teacher, um, how, whatever orientation, could be a pastor, could be a meditation teacher, could be a martial arts or a yoga instructor, whatever, whatever works for you. But having a teacher and then a community mm. is the third one. Um, so those are three really useful ways to establish a practice. There are some, I would say, uh, quicker, perhaps more lightweight ways. Uh, there's a lot of good apps out there, actually, um, that are uh, useful to start you on the path of uh, mindfulness practices. Um, there, uh, an app, there's an app called Simple Habit um, that offers you a variety of different um, topics on mindfulness, and you could choose one. Um, there's Headspace. There's Calm.com. Both of those are meditation apps, uh, so they're a little bit more focused on the act of meditation. Um, so what I would say is find a way that works for you. Start small, like two minutes if you need to do that. Um, and one of the things you'll learn is that this doesn't mean you have to go sit on a cushion on a mountaintop for like, you know, 10 days. Um, that's a very, very, very advanced version of a specific <laughs> type of mindfulness practice that might not be for you. Um, if there's a way that, you know, you can do a little bit of formal practice, it's just like exercise, right? Like, so if you did a little formal exercise and you also took the stairs while you're at work and did some 
informal or integrated exercise, it will help. Um, the analogy I like to use is uh, ath uh, professional sports. Um, so if a professional athlete only ever got their exercise, their strength training, their speed, their, their cardio, playing during game time, they wouldn't be as effective as if they did some strength training off the field, some flexibility training, thought about their nutrition, thought about their sleep, did some practice drills, right? And so uh, it's both those things. It's that formal practice and formal training, even if it's only for two minutes, and then it's the informal or integrated training on the field, or in this case, perhaps in the office, on your commute to work, walking the dog, these mm -hmm. moments where you can also bring in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So that's hopefully a seamless way people can get started. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. I think the idea of just breaking it down like that is so helpful. Because, Good. again, people hear mindfulness and it, can, it sometimes seems stressful. Yeah. <laughs> and what do I have to do? And so it's nice to just break it down and, and show how you can integrate it into your everyday Every day. Everyday Even life. this, like, we have a beautiful cup of coffee here. Your coffee, you provide the Ignite coffee. Yes. Uh, little and shout out for that. <laughs> Savoring your coffee. And you like it, right? I love it. It's delicious. And it tastes, what do you like about it? Uh, I like the spiciness to it. It's got cardamom and cinnamon and yeah, coffee flavor. Delicious. Feels like it's good for me and it's tasty. But the important thing for a mindfulness practice as well with regard to this coffee is that is a mindful moment, simply savoring. So how about that for everyone who's listening? You know, Next time you have your coffee or tea or, um, or some healthy beverage of choice, um, savor it. Just take a moment, stop, and just allow yourself the experience of taking that sip and really tasting and savoring the experience. That's all mindfulness is. It's awareness of the moment. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The moment is not only full of delightful, joyful things, it's actually miraculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so true. It is so true. I think that whole idea of, you know, change the way you look at things and things you look at change. Yes. Yes. Can you expand on that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, I, the other version of that I've heard is we often see the world not as it is, yeah. but as we are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the lens right. that which we see things uh -huh. is really informs our reality. And for any geeks out there who are really into neuroscience, because I am, um, <laughs> both of those things, uh, you know, we have as part of our brain this thing called the negativity bias. Mm. It helped keep us alive as primitive humans, right? It was mo more important to look for threats in our environment, to scan for threats on a continual basis than it was to eat this delicious berry, right? Right, Because the, the, the danger thing, because if we missed the danger, we could be dead. If we didn't get to eat the berry, we could eat it tomorrow. Right, And so this negativity bias uh, has actually been documented by neuroscientists. Uh, the negative is stronger than a positive to a ratio of about three to one. Wow. And so that's what we're working with, folks. <laughs> we're working with this negative negativity filter. Mm. The beautiful thing about mindfulness is you become aware of what is this lens? What is this way I'm seeing the world um, as opposed to the way the world is, right? And when you allow yourself to become aware, let me just hit pause on the angry, you know, upset, and just experience this moment as it is. Experience that sunshine or the cuteness of the dog or the kid um, or what, or this, how delicious this coffee is. You, you pivot out of that negativity bias 
And actually, in your brain, you pivot out of a, a, a brain network called the default network and into what's called the direct attention network that's much more concerned with experiencing your environment as it is rather than the filter of sort of self-referencing thought, as it's called. It actually is a different brain network. But again, not to geek out too much, the core idea here is that like we, we often operate with a filter. We often... Um, look at, we often tell ourselves a story about the facts rather than experiencing the facts themselves. Right. And then we act on the story, not the facts. Right. Right. And so, yeah, getting to the facts or in this case, just um, reality as it is rather than as we wish to see it is what's the core difference. That's so fascinating. When you talk about living from a story, you know, and it's not, it's not true. And you could flip that story Right. And is that the idea of even with meditation or yeah. mindfulness, you then have the ability? Yes. Can you talk about that? Like yeah. how that allows that to happen? Absolutely. So um, the best way I could describe this is it's kind of like pulling back the camera, pulling back the lens, right? It's, uh, it's um, developing what's technically called meta-awareness, meta-awareness, you know, awareness of um, experience, you know, just uh, it's observer's mind. Um, someone once described it as being a spectator to your own experience, mm-hmm. right? With curiosity and going, oh, wow, look, that's happening. So a good example is when we have powerful emotions, they happen in our body. Actually, every emotion happens in our body. That, that's a revelation for some people, but every emotion happens in our body. Emotions are physiological occurrences. We take in stimuli from the environment, a loud noise happens, or we see an image, or we hear a noise, or um, have an interaction. That's a stimuli. We take it in, we interpret it with our brain, and it sends an emotion to our body. And that's when you say, where's that? where do you feel that? Where do you feel that, right? So for listeners, think about the last, again, because of the negativity bias, it's easy for us to access negative emotions. So think about the last time you felt a, a powerful negative emotion, maybe stress, or anxiety, or anger, or fear. Now, Literally, where exactly, precisely, did you feel that? And when I ask this to people in workshops, they often point to their jaw or their heart or their stomach or like the back of their neck or like their temples and their headache, you know, or their forehead. But it's always bodily. It's always based in the body because emotions happen in the body. Now, back to your question, like how does mindfulness help us with this kind of these powerful emotions that we get caught up in when we tell ourselves stories about ourselves. First, to be aware that um, these emotions are happening in our body. And so being aware of what that emotion is and allowing yourself to understand that you're experiencing, that emotion is a physical process and you're just experiencing this physical process. So rather than saying, I am angry and that defines me and that's my story and that's it, how about saying, I'm experiencing anger? And I'm feeling it like right here, right in my neck. It's all red. And it becomes, and then noticing the physical sensation and then getting curious about that, right? And then that starts to get you away from being caught in your story. You're just experiencing a natural process. Maybe you have good reason to be angry. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be angry, but you become aware of the emotional process of being angry. And in becoming aware, you can decide should I be angry? Or is this not a cause to be angry? Mm-hmm. 
right? Can, mm-hmm. I, can I tell you a quick story? Yes. Um, yes. So like, um, and that skill, the differentiating, using mindfulness to differentiate between reacting versus responding to an event is critical. It's called response flexibility. So that between a s- stimulus and your response to the stimulus, you have a moment to pause and to choose. And that's where you can make a difference. This is from the work of Viktor Frankl, a famous uh, post-World War II psychiatrist. So the story, though, is that we're sitting uh, in our living room, uh, in our dining room, looking out the window. And my wife said to me something very innocuous. Uh, she said, uh, oh, the curtains. Three words. Oh, the <laughs> curtains. She said it pretty much in that tone of voice. <laughs> because what was supposed to happen that week was that I was supposed to call to get our custom current curtain fittings reordered or something like this. And I was traveling and I forgot to do this. Interesting thing I noticed happened to me. <laughs> a sensation started to happen to me and it started coming up from my waist all the way up to my chest till it went about my neck. Mm-hmm. I realized, what is this sensation? And, and I realized this it's heat. And I was like, why am I hot and bothered? And I said, hold on a sec, babe. I need to go get the OJ. We're having breakfast. And so I got up from the table, took a breath and just turned my attention, mindful attention to my body and said, I'm experiencing heat. And if I had to label that, I'd say it's anger and I'm feeling angry, right? So why am I angry? I'm thinking about this, right? And reflecting on this. And I said, what did she say? Did she say, oh, oh, oh the curtains, comma, stupid. She didn't say anything like that, right? She just said, oh, the curtains. She just noticed that they didn't get replaced, right? So I'm talking to myself here now. I open the fridge, take another mindful breath. Okay, just breathe. Notice what you're feeling. Now, do I have a right to feel this way? And I realized, no, I have no reason to be angry with my poor wife, you know? Uh, It's just some drama in my head. Who knows? Narrative in my head. Maybe this is just me feeling like I should have, but I didn't call. Maybe I feel guilty. Right. Maybe, because who knows what, you know? Um, So I sit down at the table, take one more breath and say, I'm so sorry, babe, all the travel. And I didn't call. She's like, oh, no, that's cool. Maybe you can call next week. And I was dumbfounded. I was I was literally dumbstruck. And she sat there. She goes, what, what, what happened? And I said, I think mindfulness just saved our Sunday morning because if I had gone with the narrative right. and yeah. reacted based on my own narrative, right. my story about the facts rather than the facts, mm. that would have been like three or four hours, right. you yeah. know, so with me probably in the doghouse, yeah. right? So um, of all of my own making. <laughs> right. Because she did nothing. The right. poor woman did nothing. She just noticed you know, it would have been different if her tone of voice was different. But I'm right. honestly here to tell you that she was just like just eating her, her breakfast. Going, oh, the curtains. <laughs> you know, like, uh, when are we going to call about that? You know, like, so, so funny. anyway, it's, so true. it's just an example rather than getting too out there about mindfulness and yeah. narratives. And, you right. know, like, you can bring it down to earth. You can find different ways to interact and different ways to work with your own interpretations of events as they're happening. And choose different ones. And when you talked about it earlier, that uh, meditation was the muscle. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the muscle right. that's that you're muscle. creating. So right. that when you were at the refrigerator, right, having the OJ, mindful you were breathing. it was mindful breathing. Right. You reenacted that, got right. that muscle. I got engaged. the muscle going, and I, I applied the muscle to mm. my sensation, which was like, okay, I'm feeling heat. Can I name that? What is this heat? This is this this physical sensation is. I labeled the emotion anger, and then I thought. Okay, then I have to appraise my anger. I have to like really look at my anger. Am I angry for a good reason here? Right? So it's all a process of reflection on experience. 
That's the magic of mindfulness. If you had to ask me what is mindfulness in a really simple way, you're reflecting on your experience. That's all it is. It's that simple. You're just taking a moment to reflect on the experience you're having. Right. It's and, called awareness. And then you choose. <laughs> and then you and choose, choose. And then you respond skillfully. And yeah. you get yeah. better at it with, with practice. practice. And then you create joy. Yes. And then you can access, well, you <laughs> no, access, yeah, access joy, joy that's there. That's, that's there. within. Right. And then you live in your miracle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Are we done here then? Oh, yeah, sounds I think like, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> I think that's a good. I think that's good. Yeah. Good, fun. good punctuation. So you're, Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>